Hey, welcome to the Gospel Rant and also the Forgiving Path. I'm Dr. Bill Sinyard. This is a special Resurrection Week podcast. We're going to put it on Gospel Rant as well as the Forgiving Path. Uh, I already put one out earlier for Easter, but I, I, I was reading John Barclay's Paul and the Power of Grace. It was recommended to me by my daughter, Aubrey Buster. It is a fantastic must-read. It's a bit theologically deep, but oh my gosh, it's stunning, so clarifying uh, when he speaks of what he describes as the Christ gift, and it's so pertinent to our worship and our celebration of the resurrection that I thought I'd put it out there. Hey, listen, give me some feedback. What do you think? Bill at gospel-app.com. Here's what Barclay says. The wisdom of God is not human wisdom enhanced, and the power of God is not a more powerful vision of human power. Grace works not to supplement human capacity, but in the absence of human power, not to reward worth, but where there is none. And, and that's where I want to take us in this dialogue this Easter week, particularly as we consider the resurrection of Jesus. Of the many things that Jesus' death and resurrection mean, one of the most overlooked, I suspect, might be the one that could be most helpful to the most people today in our churches. And I'm thinking of that Christian who has been in church all of his or her life. They've been faithful, or at least they've tried. They've prayed or they've tried, and it's a struggle. They try to be ethical. They do. They try to do the kind things. They try to forgive, but they struggle. It's a hit or miss, and and, and largely miss is discouraging, right? And it can lead to self-resentment because they struggle with powerful things like addictions to, to uh, alcohol, to self-med, to porn. They struggle with gossip, uh, other sex stuff, a whole bunch of things. And so in those still quiet moments, they feel like they're a disappointment to Jesus. They are a follower of Jesus, but... They just as soon avoid his gaze. It's human. It's not all their fault. And they feel like they have fallen short of his expectation, not just his, but others, their own expectations again and again. They started their Christian journey in joy, wanting to do whatever it took so that when they see Jesus face to face, they would hear him whisper those beautiful words, well done, good and faithful servant, or here it is, here he is, here she is, my beloved son or daughter with whom I'm well pleased. How many of us have given up on that so long ago? I know one man whose efforts on behalf of the church are really without equal, and he wonders publicly, he hopes that he does enough to maybe, just maybe, hear Jesus say, well, at least you tried. That is tragic in light of the Christ event, the death and resurrection of Christ. I'm going to tell you, so, so common in Christianity Many of you know that I've done a great deal of work helping Christians process forgiving others, how to forgive others differently, biblically. And here's one thing I've found. Almost every Christian has heard over and over that Jesus commands that they forgive 70 times 7. But honestly, I don't know a single Christian who has come anywhere close to that. I mean, nowhere close to that. I haven't. Look, our awareness of our failures has led to individual and corporate self-disappointment, self-resentment, shame. And it's manifested in a hesitancy to pray, to worship, to feel joy, to be grateful. Why would I worship Jesus as the victorious one? Why would I stand there and raise my hands when I failed him over and over? I know it and he knows it. I'm not credible. I don't belong. You know, I'm also speaking to the poor soul, the Christian who has been beat up. Maybe the pandemic, 
Maybe there's anxiety due to wars and violence around the world. Maybe depression. Maybe you've been robbed, abused, shamed, embarrassed, humiliated, traumatized. Maybe you have suffered from chronic sexism or racism or lots of the other isms. You know, I'm speaking to the, to the person who, who realized that they're not enough. It must explain it, right? You're not smart enough, faithful enough, strong enough. You're not a good enough son or daughter or, or employee or boss or parent. You're not successful enough, woke enough, righteous enough, pure enough, attractive enough, lovable enough, right? It's epidemic. You, you, or you're that pastor who's not a pastor enough and you have to hide failure, try to find credit where you can. I get it. So it's largely for you that I'm speaking this way about the death and resurrection of Jesus. There's a lot of things that the death and resurrection of Jesus mean, and but this is so important. And I hope that this makes real Christians this season feel something that they haven't in a long time. Let's see. Well, first, here's Barclay on the resurrection. Quote, In the Roman world, as everyone knew, crucifixion was designed to humiliate its victims. It was a form of elongated public torture that caused extreme pain and maximum shame. The Romans used crucifixion especially for disobedient slaves and provincial rebels, and victims were deliberately elevated high, both for public visibility and to mock their claims to power. Oh my gosh, think of Jesus. Back to the quote, in this parody of elevation, the crucified were pinned helpless and naked, gradually losing bodily control. They were shamed and degraded, rendered subhuman, their corpses normally left as meat for the vultures or crows. One would expect crucifixion to be an aspect of the fate of Jesus that no believer would want to showcase. But Paul insists, we proclaim Christ crucified, 1 Corinthians one twenty three. God's wisdom and God's power did their deepest work precisely here, 1 Corinthians 1, 24-25. There could hardly be a greater challenge to the civilized values of the Roman world and its obsession with power, quote, for God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness, think of that, God's weakness is stronger than human strength, 1 Corinthians 1, 25, close quote. Barclay speaks of this as the Christ event. And he says that it turns our notions of the world upside down. Until the Christ event, a person's worth was always defined, always defined by what they did, who they were, their social or economic status, their people, um, their skin color, their sex, their power uh, or ability to save face, their reputations, right? And this makes sense to us. Same today, even though it was a honor, shame, deeply honor, shame culture over there more so than than we have here, but it's still there. One's worth and subsequent happiness is based upon your enoughness in so many areas. But then the singular Christ event reshaped not only history, but shaped what worth and value is all about. After the death and resurrection of Christ, our value is located somewhere else, not in our reputation. It's in a relationship in one person, Jesus Here's Barclay again, quote, the gift of Christ was the definitive act of divine grace and was an incongruous gift given without regard to worth. And hold on to that. That's exactly where we're going to come back to. See, and I would add without regard to enoughness or experience enoughness or success in our abilities to live up to any expectations or a history of success or failures, our reputations, our name, who likes me and who doesn't like me. 
Here's Barclay. Quote, because this gift did not fit with previous criteria of value, the Christ event has recalibrated all systems of worth, including righteousness defined by the law. The gift of God, I'm continuing with Barclay, is here identified not with creation, nor with the gift of the law, nor even with the long history of salvation, but with a singular event, the death and resurrection of Jesus. This has created a new dynamic of grace that has decisively altered the cosmos, affecting a rescue from a universal condition that Paul calls the present evil age. Paul bears witness here not to general truths about the nature of God or the structures of existence, but to a historical event, a singular universal that has redivided history and redefined the whole of reality. Close quote. After the crisis event, our source of identity and worth and name and reputation and face is radically changed, never to return to where it was. All right, see this again. Christ intentionally entered into the most humiliation, most reputational failure. Uh, he fell short of so many expectations surrounding him, swirling around him, embarrassingly so. In front of such abusive injustice and hypocrisy, he endured shameful treatment by the weak and the strong, by the religious leaders, by the Sanhedrin, the Roman prelate, his friends, and then stripped naked to hang in front of the very people that he came for, that he loved. Uh, can I ask you, the, the, the people that I'm, I, I listed before, do you think that Jesus gets what you're going through? Yes. Can he relate to your suffering? Oh my goodness, of course. Your embarrassment, your humiliation, you're being treated unfairly, unjustly, your greatness overlooked, your opinions overlooked, people not listening to you, not hearing you, the, your failure to achieve your goals, your jobs, your life ambitions. Yeah, he's the poster child for people like us, for, for those of us who have fallen short of expectations of all of those around us, all of those who trusted in us and we let down. Humanly speaking, he was hung up by the Romans for everyone to see, including family and friends and people. Uh, what a failure he appeared to be. But then, in the resurrection, God intentionally reached down this is God. He reached down, touched failure, embraced humiliation, um, glorified human uh, falling short of expectations, and embarrassed humanity. That's the Christ event. Barclay again, quote, Paul, we shall see, had an unusual, creative, and socially radical understanding of the grace of God arising from the gift, Christ. Whereas good gifts were, and still are, normally thought to be distributed best to fitting or worthy recipients, Paul took the Christ gift, the ultimate gift of God to the world, to be given without regard to worth, and in the absence of worth, an unconditioned or incongruous gift that did not match the worth of its recipients, but created it. Close quote. It's a whole new source of worth and identity. Oh my gosh, so much more lasting. It proclaims that God's not scouring the planet looking for the most righteous. We thought so. The most pure, the overcomers, those most faithful. He intentionally loves and pursues the least likely, the wrecks, the failures, the humiliated, the abused, the overlooked, the bullied. That's all of us, by the way. And he makes us righteous. He makes us pure. He makes us overcomers. He makes us people of worth and value and substance. 
It's that rescue, that adoption, that marriage with him that makes the dishonored honorable, that makes the unenviable here enviable. I'm currently writing a book on the Sermon on the Mount. I'm doing a Gospel Rant podcast as well, but it's going to lead to a a book from the point of view of Matthew a decade or so after he wrote his gospel. He's a missionary in uh, Aksum, Ethiopia, and is unpacking the Sermon on the Mount more because he gets so many questions about it in the mission field. And he's trying to clarify what Jesus was talking about. And here is roughly the first beatitude. You know, blessed are the the, the poor in spirit because the kingdom of God is theirs. Here we go. You, the ones who came here unenviable due to what has happened to you, what you have done or failed to do, who you are, from where you have fallen, but here now you are enviable. Why? Because you are God's and he is yours. Isn't that about right? So it's it's when we by faith, by the power of the Spirit, and we need the Spirit because it's just it's just so hard to wrap our brains around this. When by the power of the Spirit we stop experiencing our worth from the Christ event and we slip back, this is so human, it's not all your fault. We slip back to looking for our significance, security, our reputation, our belonging, anywhere else. It's then that we actually stop dancing as Christians. We stop feeling gratefulness. We stop worshiping. We stop being merciful to others. Here's Barclay again, quote, But in the ancient world, almost every aspect of worth was dependent on one's public reputation, which was insecure and perpetually contestable at almost every point. To maintain your worth, you had to keep asserting it and defending it in the awareness that others could at any moment make a claim by which your worth would be undermined or outclassed. The rumor mill was the Roman social media, and they were ever anxious to make it clear that by one criteria or another, wealth, ancestry, education, legal status, physique, ethnicity, or character, their honor could be established in comparison with others. As Cicero put it, by nature we yearn and hunger for honor, and once we've glimpsed, as it were, some part of its radiance, there is nothing we are not prepared to bear and to suffer in order to secure it. Paul's antidote to this social poison has two ingredients. On the one hand, those who have been reconstructed by the Christ event are no longer invested in the forms of capital in which most people find their worth. Oh my gosh, let me read that sentence again. Those who have been reconstructed by the Christ event, the death and resurrection of Christ, are no longer invested in the forms of capital in which most people find their worth. So think uh, being given credit, compliments, uh, likes in social media, right? We have a different capital to find our worth. All right, back to Barclay. Since ethnicity, status, and gender are no longer criteria of, of superior worth, And since God pays no regard to the face, but distributes his grace without regard to worth, the normal grounds for competition have lost their significance. Oh my gosh, that's glorious. Barclay again, the believer's true and only worth is constituted by his or her identity in Christ, a gift received, not a status inherited or achieved. Within the new community, there stands out those whose lives are most marked by the new ethos created by this gift. Those, for instance, who are spiritual and given responsibility insofar as they are attuned to the Spirit. Close quote. That's on page 111 in uh, Barclay's book. Now think about it. 
Remember what you once felt. When you first looked up, you saw in Jesus' eyes, looking back at you, just how valuable you were to him. You felt that worth. You felt that status, right? You felt loved. And that has not changed from his point of view, but you have, and we do daily, to be honest. But so on Sunday morning, this Easter morning, Resurrection Sunday morning, when you again see, however you see it, you see again the empty tomb and the resurrected Jesus, rejoice and remember. First, rejoice that our God touches dead things, the humiliated, the humanly weak things, the failures, the foolish things. And he's not spoiled. He's not made impure. His reputation is not scarred or undermined in the least. And it's just the opposite. His name is held up higher than any other name. There's no one like him. His honor is not blemished. The dishonored become unblemished. That's us. All because of Jesus and the the Jesus event, the Christ event. It is an incongruous gift, says Barclay, not based on our worth, our success, our credit, our purity, our righteousness, our wokeness. Just the opposite. The gift, the grace is given to the unworthy, period. Listen, you may not feel it right now, but I will tell you, Christian, because of the Christ event, God's heart is towards you. Again, not on the basis of what you've done or what's been done to you or who you are, the color of your skin, your sex, your political views, your accomplishment, or your failures, your faithfulness or faithlessness, your enoughness or lack of enoughness in any area at all, whether you feel it or not. It's yours. And look, you've fallen short of expectations again and again. We all have. You lack faith. We all do. But it is for you that the Christ event offers more, offers hope, and the promises of life in abundance in the future, but beginning now, foretaste of it. And I get it. Who who treats us this way? Nobody, right? I don't even treat myself that way. I struggle with that concept. My brain just, like I said, cannot wrap its arms around it. I need the power of the Holy Spirit. And I imagine you too. And how do we get that? We ask. God, this is Ephesians 3, God, on on the uh, basis of your power, let me access that through the Holy Spirit of my inner being so that I can begin to feel the height and width and length and depth of the love of Christ. All because of the Christ event. Here's Barclay one last time. Quote, within this community, that's the community of believers, the faith, the church, uh, you know, uh, we're flopping around, but we're still in that community. So within this community, honor does not have to be sought. All honor that counts has already been given or will be given by God. Believers are freed from the need to establish their honor through competition or in retaliation against those who harmed them. And they can afford to grant honor without reservation to others. In fact, in 1210, Paul outlines a paradoxical inversion of the normal honor quest. In loving one another, believers strive to take the lead, not in claiming honor, but in giving it to one another. Because this is done in a reciprocal way, no one is left demeaned, but all are supported within a community where every member matters. Close quote. Oh my gosh. I know we, the Christians in the church, want to be that when we grow up. So we are among the loved failures and the humiliated, the underachievers, whom God has raised up to honor and glory because of the Christ event. God loves us, even though we don't feel it a lot with all the love in the universe, all because of the singular Christ event. 
And all we need to do is ask the Spirit this Sunday to make us feel it so that we can dance, so that we can be grateful for the depth of our being again this Easter. Beloved, He is risen. He is risen indeed. Take heart, child of God. Dedicating time each day to spend feeding our minds and our hearts the truth of God's Word is immensely helpful in our growth as followers of Christ. I'm John Stonge, and each day I host a show called Daily Devotions with Pastor John. On the show, I spend just a few minutes taking an applicational look at one or two verses of Scripture before coming to the Lord in prayer. If you'd like to make a habit of spending more time meditating on the truth of God's Word, You can listen to Daily Devotions with Pastor John at lifeaudio.com or on your favorite podcasting app.